I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Are we mic'd up? Are we, are, are we mic'd up? Is it working? Yeah. Good. Well, good evening and thank you for coming. So I'm going to be a sort of um, ringmaster for this evening. Um, I'm going to be saying a little bit about my book, really because this will be a sort of uh, chassis to hang Beethoven's life on and provide a sort of structure for talking about him. Because my two colleagues here have both been commissioned to do poems around Beethoven. I'm really keen to hear what they say and what the, and to, to read them. But I thought I'd start by saying a little bit about why I wrote this book, which is um, a, a quartet, really, of, of four movements of his life. He was born in 1770. The first movement is 12 poems, is 1770 to um, 1800, more or less. And then from when he went to Vienna, he was born in Bonn, in an outpost of the Holy Roman Empire. Then from um, 21 to 31, he was in his first phase of life as a virtuoso pianist, really, in Vienna, and beginning to write what everybody calls his, his early phase, his first phase, of his first style. At the end of that time, before he was 30, he began to realize that he was going deaf. He went deaf in a lot of different stages, and, um, but this was agonizing for him. So his first big crisis is 1802, when he considers whether he's going to kill himself. Because how can a musician in such a competitive musical town, how can a musician um, live? And as you'll hear in one of these poems, he decides to live for his art. He goes back and immediately he writes the Eroica Symphony, the Heroes Symphony. And he, this inaugurates an extraordinary decade of writing really most of the music that we all know as Beethoven. And he goes up to the 7th, 8th symphony, the, the piano concertos, the great, most of the great violin sonatas, cello sonatas. Um, and then um, 1812, he has another crisis. And partly that coincides with the sort of, as it were, climax of his tragic 
an unfulfilled love life. The immortal beloved, we don't know who she was. He, something happens. He writes a devastated letter. And then he goes into the third period, which is, which starts off with six barren, miserable years in which he's practically not writing anything. And then suddenly there is the late flowering of the extraordinary last music, the Mrs. Solemnis, the Ninth Symphony, which I think Anthony will be talking a bit about, and, um, and the late quartets. So I'm just going to start by reading a couple of poems from the early period, and then I want to ask um, Ray and Anthony about what they've done, and then we'll come back to sort of finish him off, really. Um, um, we, we haven't got any music. You'll have to carry the music in your heads or go home afterwards. But a lot of my poems um, reference the music. And But I wanted to start... I think I had three things that I wanted to ask myself. First of all, how did this scruffy little boy, pockmarked, son of an alcoholic, how did he come to write these extraordinary things and have, you know, by the time he died, all the schools in Vienna were closed, 10,000 people followed his funeral. How did that happen? Um, how did it happen that this boy radicalized music in a way more in Western music more than anybody, even Stockhausen? Beethoven changed things in the most radical, surprising way. Um, and also, how did it happen that somebody who um, had very explosive, complicated, difficult, thorny, upsetting relationships with people managed to write music in which the voices are such in such amazing relationship to each other? Um, and I suppose that was how my journey of writing so this, this one is called, If Your Father Damaged You. The way meteorites spin in, clustering on Antarctic ice. Bare shields of glacier burnished by ferocious wind, because your father is magnetite, dragging all the iron in your soul into his own force field. You seal yourself in. You need Nothing but music. Your answer to abstraction will be fire. In the little hall of the house where you were born, the one original surface is dark silver flagstones where you might have crawled. Light falls in shallow hollows of deciduous rubbed stone clogged with spume of cleaning fluid, where I imagine your mother carrying the shopping your father staggering home drunk up these stairs, their new cut wood now polished to the amber shine of a harvest moon, to wake you in the middle of the night, stand you for hours on a bench as you, so you can reach the keys. You cry as you play, slapped if you make a mistake. In daylight, he hears you improvise, splashing around, he calls it, on a violin. What rubbish are you scratching now? Isn't that beautiful? No, you made it up. You're not to do that. Stop or I'll box your ears. If your father damaged you, the way fierce winds scour glacier ice where meteorites have fallen from heaven, but 
He was the one who made you, beat the notes into you on the clavier, viola, violin. Your response to challenge ever after will be attack. You will need no one, only the relationship of sound and key. You improvise. So I'm just going to read one more short poem. Um, this is from his first crisis when he has to accept he's going deaf. He he um he kept it quiet. He didn't tell his friends. Um, he went to a few doctors who gave him daft things, like one doctor bound poisonous bark around his upper arms, then left it for a while until the pus came, lanced the pus and said, there, that is all the fluid that is blocking your ears. It's coming out of your arms. Another one put um, burning herbs on his stomach. So that was the level of, of treatment he had. But one sensible doctor said, go and rest your ears for six months outside Vienna. So he went and into a little town called, rather heartbreakingly, Heiligenstadt, which, of course, means holy city. Um, he was there for six months, but by October, he realized it wasn't going to work. And there's a heart-rending document called the Heiligenstadt Testament in which he wrote a letter on the 6th of October, 1802, ostensibly to his brothers, but also to all humanity, because he knew, this was, he was under 31, he knew that he had all this extraordinary stuff in him, and he wanted to give it to humanity. And that, again, underlies the ode to joy, which he will come up with at the end of his life. Five of this called, Until it please the fates to break the thread. Five full moons, five waning moons, touches of chill in the autumn night, Dying vine leaves, purple as the pulse vein in his wrist. The woods yellow, then black and bare. The candle trembles in a draught. Shutters swing in silence like the sea breathing through glass. He cannot hear the driving rain. But he's sketching a funeral march, a symphony. I have taken a new path. <coughs> So even at that moment of despair, what was stirring in him was the Eroica symphony, his breakthrough symphony into the new style, the style, the hero's style. So I, I, I want to stop his life there because I want to now to turn to Anthony. Um, and Anthony, would you like to be saying, saying what you've been doing, this special, <coughs> extraordinary Beethoven project, unique that you've been doing all year? Um, yeah, so I was asked by the South Bank um, last year if I'd be interested in rewriting Ode to Joy um, to mark Beethoven's 250th anniversary at the South Bank that's going to happen in April of this year. Um, and when I sat down with the good folk there, um, I said, I'm not really that familiar with um, the good Beethoven's uh, work. I, was, I know his music because I listen to classic FM whenever I feel like it um but i don't really feel confident enough to kind of take on something of this magnitude and they said that's absolutely fine you're the perfect guy for this job and so um i said to them what i'd like to do is rather than j literally just giving kind of my take on schiller's ode to joy 
would be to try and give it a more contemporary feel and focus on some of the sensibilities that are evident in the poem and how we can make them relevant today, particularly thinking about the political climate, um, nationalism, division, Brexit, so on and so forth. So I kind of said I wanted to have elements of Arabic and Mandarin and Urdu in the poem, like kind of take those words, and they were all for it. And so I said, I also want to work with young people Um, refugees as well as people from local state schools in London and ask them what does joy mean to them Um, and get responses What, what, what does joy mean to somebody living in Finsbury Park or somebody who's come from a war in the Middle East what does joy mean and so I did that with 12 different groups um, from August to November and then I took elements of what they responded with and built them into the poem as well um, that I wrote over kind of from November till January. The difficulty that I found with writing it was a number of things. I'm not used to writing around music, so there was quite a lot of constriction syllabically um, as kind of prosody as well where you can actually go. So I worked with a director and I worked with um, a songwriter to try and have sounds, vowels, fit in certain places that I'd never had to think about as a poet writing in a book. Like, you don't think about these things. You think about the musicality of language, but never around those kind of elements. Um, And so the Arabic and the Urdu stuff that I wanted, we couldn't find the translator in time because we were working to time lips. So those bits didn't make it in, so we ended up keeping it with the English. But there was... um, a lot of there's some colloquialism that we've put in there as well. Um, so I say people them, um, and they said this is a typo. You've made them. I said no. Nah. They said is it people them? And I was like no, it's people them, as in the people. And then we're just like oh, okay, uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, no, we'll go with it. And so I kind of, I kind of feel that we were doing um, that kind of. That kind of thing, but as a whole, it was really, it was really quite fun. And um, the poem is looking at plurality. It's looking as us. I called it "Oh Human." Um, it's quite male-centric, the Schiller version, um, in the way that you know, man symbolised all of humanity. So I kind of took all that nonsense out and um, and just had it in regards to humanity and the different things that we represent as people. So what sort of insights did you get into why Beethoven might have chosen that poem to, to, for his sort of final statement of what he wanted to give humanity? But I think it's just exactly, I mean, the kind of political climate of his time was quite similar to what we had now. So I kind of feel that as a gesture, it was really quite, you know, like it was really quite important to have that being put out there. And to think about it in the context of its time, it was doing that thing. It was showing solidarity. It was trying to bring people together um, in quite tenuous and volatile spaces. Because mm. that was, when he wrote the, when he wrote it, it took a long time to write the Ninth Symphony. And it was actually commissioned from London, um, by London. And um, he conducted it. Mm. And he thought he conducted it, and he went. He threw his arms around, and he was in front of the orchestra. But the real conductor was behind, and he didn't realise when they'd finished because he couldn't hear. And everybody burst into applause, and the alto soloist gently turned him round to show him everybody just yeah, yeah. 
So it really it was a sort of apocalyptic moment. Of, yeah. And didn't of they start using handkerchiefs after that to show <laughs> to show applause or something? I, I mean, they told me this mm. when we were doing the the research on it, and they said that story. Then they said after that they started using handkerchiefs to show. Mm. I think now we use jazz hands, right? Something like <laughs> which is when people. Yeah, so I kind of feel yeah that kind of thing. Yeah, yes. so I kind of feel that they started doing handkerchiefs to show where there was applause. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was an interesting. It was an interesting project, and I kind of, I'm excited to have it. So there's 200 National Youth Orchestra are going to be singing it um, in April in the Royal Festival Hall. Uh, tickets have gone on sale, so if you guys want to come and see what we've done, like that will be. Yeah, I think it, we, we we can't hear it tonight because um, it's, it's embargoed. embargoed yes. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you'll just have to get the tickets. Yeah, and, exactly. Yes. So Ray, what about you? Because you 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 were also commissioned to write some poems about Beethoven. And you picked something very, very special. Yeah, um, I was asked by the Barbican to write about Beethoven because it's 250 years uh, since his birth. And at first I said no uh, <laughs> for a similar reason as Anthony. Uh, I, I didn't feel particular kinship about Beethoven. You know, uh, Beethoven, the main thing about him in terms of the, you know, the mythology of the man was that he's this man who, who, who was deafened and overcame it. And he's used as this kind of example of, uh, even if you're deaf, you can blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, I'm just not interested in those narratives. But what I decided to do is, um, cause I knew he wrote letters. I, I, every now and then I, uh, read people's letters. And so I went to his letters and I read, uh, six years of his letters. And within that time, from 1801 to 1806, um, and I came across a concert that Beethoven gave in Vienna with a man called George Polgreen Bridgetower. And the way that he wrote about this man, George Polgreen Bridgetower, um, there's this whole story there, you know, I'm sure you know about it. And then I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Like, I've never heard of this man. He's um, born in Poland, has a Caribbean father, just kind of hailed as one of the great violinists of his time, but completely erased by history. And then I find out that he's buried in London, he's in Peckham, and I go and I look for his grave. And, um, and so kind of, uh, you know, Beethoven became a catalyst for, for this kind of forgotten musician. Uh, and that's who I chose to focus on. And when I went back to the uh, Barbican, I said, do you mind if I take this on? You know, it starts with Beethoven, but it but I want to look at look at this man. I think this is interesting. And they hadn't heard of him either. <laughs> That's disgraceful. And uh, <laughs> I mean, he, he was well. But you're going to are they going to do the Kreutzer Sonata with it? I've I done it already. I've read, yeah. like, all I'm doing. Oh, so it's not it. even a project. I'm just, mm. I just mm. wrote two poems and that's, that's me. Done. Over here. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, so um, this is the poem I wrote uh, going, to, going to Kensal Green Cemetery, I suppose. And, um, yeah, some of, some of the stories that's behind that I'll... I'll I'll feed in. I mean, we'll have a discussion in a way, won't we? Uh, George Paul Green Bridge Tower. And I've written the title because his, uh, his name is faded from his grave. It's a completely kind of uh, abandoned grave. 
At Kensal Green Cemetery, I walk each green stone path between chapel and tomb, past graves with hovering helium balloons, past a woman in shorts and vests in December freeze, scrubbing tombstones like the backs of tired fathers. In the cemetery office, I ask for Bridgetower, composer and violinist, lived in Peckham and lies at rest here, black, Polish, British, played with Beethoven. Beethoven. The name lit all the desks and directed me to the Anglican Chapel. At the Anglican Chapel, English writers, composers, philosophers, priests, painters, but no bridge tower. I walk off the path, a small withered plaque, no celebrations or balloons, no mention in the notable graves, an eroded name, an audience of shade. And so when I found out more about... um, kind of what had happened between Bridge Tower. I found this uh, at Beethoven. I just want to read uh, a footnote, which was in, in the letters. In 1803, a 32-year-old Beethoven met 22-year-old George Paul Green Bridge Tower, quote, great mulatto composer and lunatic in Vienna. <laughs> Beethoven wrote Sonata Number no. 9, Op 47 for Bridge Tower, and they played as a duet at the Argerton Theatre. They'd only had one rehearsal, and Bridge Tower modified parts of the composition during the, for- the performance, which had Beethoven rising from his piano, yelling, Again, my dear fellow! But after a falling out over a, quote, unnamed woman, Beethoven erased Bridge Tower from the sonata and dedicated it instead to uh, Rodolf Kreutzer. Kreutzer. Kreutzer, yeah. Uh, and he was hailed as the greatest violinist of his time, who rendered the sonata, quote, outrageously unintelligible. (laughs) During this time, no one in the public knew that Beethoven had lost 60% of his hearing and he was trying to keep it a secret. And I found that a really interesting uh, uh, detail because all we have about uh, this man, George Paul Green Bridgetower, is kind of how Beethoven wrote about him in his letters um, about this kind of interaction that happened between him and this woman. And the way he writes about him, unfortunately, that the, the language is quite difficult. I mean, to, um, to say that he called him primitive would be, would be a polite way to put it. But I've written a poem trying to, I guess, imagine George Paul Green's uh, kind of account, because there's no rec- record of it. Um, so this is just kind of written in his voice, pieced together based on Beethoven's letter. <clears throat> He didn't say much to black boys, even after my strings brightened the famous Orgerton Theatre. We brought Vienna to the edge of something that made me mythic, a lunatic mulatto. After one encore, we stood and he went silent. I wondered how he lost the jubilance that jumped out his letters to me and if he knew how to speak outside music. I was 22 and fresh to city nights. When we drank in the tavern, I slipped my hands under some skirt while Beethoven sat looking like I'd wronged his note. When, then we went to rehearse, and even though he never spoke, I noticed clouds of scolding fathers quietly gathering in his gravity. I wish I'd paid attention to the shadows in that room, for I would never leave its corners, not in Vienna, Paris, not in Rome or London. Not my fault that he wasn't what women want, but they called me Prince to his face of smashed keys. Of course, I was moored, a fellowed, caught in myths, but I knew how to fiddle then for what I wanted. I'm forgotten, but no one forgets Beethoven storming into the night. 
I screeched his name, but until it burst my mouth and shook the street. But he didn't hear. He didn't hear. Oh. I think, I mean, he, he, he was an extraordinary man. He was very, very gifted. And he was, um, he was born in Poland, but then was taken up by the Prince of Wales. And so he worked, uh, he, he, and then he went to Trinity Hall in Cambridge. They've mm, got a room yeah. named after him. Yeah. Um, and so when he arrived, Beethoven must have been so surprised. And then he was so surprised by what he did, the improvising, which was very similar to what he did himself. Mm. So there must have been, when I read that story, I felt there must have been some sort of identification from Beethoven, who was very dark as a child and was called a Spaniard. Um, and so, you know, he must have felt some sort of mode of embrace with him. And then whatever happened with this woman, um, there was also Beethoven's revulsion of, of whatever. Yeah, we don't know. I, I didn't want to write something that would glorify George Bridge Tower because he might have been an asshole, you know what I mean? He might have been like a misogynist and Beethoven might have actually done the right thing. We, that, we just won't know. There's no, no way to know. No, no. no it's, it's fascinating. But also, he was obviously a brilliant violinist. Mm. And so, and I think and it speaks to another thing in Beethoven, that Beethoven always had this... Um, uh, tendency to idealize what he couldn't have and what he couldn't see and somebody who was distant yeah. <clears throat> so to the distant beloved for instance yeah. and so he sent it off to Kreutzer whom he'd never met in Paris mm. and, and apparently Kreutzer just disdained it and I think he didn't even send it back no yeah <laughs> yeah so what what insights did you both have or artistic insights or any sense of, of identifying with any part of Beethoven as a writer as a composer <clears throat> I think the the music, obviously. I mean, I when I write poetry, I work around music a lot of the time. But that's not to set poems to music. It's more to kind of get in a in a space. But um, I, I particularly felt a connection with "Ode to Joy" in that a lot of the poems that I've written over the years, some critics of uh, the things that I've written have argued that they have a, a kind of a moral drive. And I kind of felt that Schiller's poem definitely had like a, a, a morality to it. It was a moralising poem. And I kind of feel that with where we are, like I said, where we are as a kind of, as a, as a nation, it's important to have poetry kind of come back and take that role again and, and use language to, to bring people together, seeing as language has done so well at pulling a country apart over the last couple of years. So I kind of feel that it was a, it was a gesture um, and a symbol towards that, which I, I felt was apposite in in the way that that poetry and and, um, and humanity can come together. That's interesting because when I when I was doing it and going to Bonn and then Vienna, and that that was sort of a year and a half ago, and we didn't know what was going to happen about Brexit then. But I was thinking that that when he was born and the French well when he was a teenager, the French Revolution happened. And he was all for it because he was all for revolution and um, getting rid of the old framework and so on. Um, but then he was horrified when Napoleon was, was mm. occupying um, Vienna. Um, and when Napoleon crowned himself an emperor, he thought the same thing was coming, coming back. Yeah. Um, so I felt Europe was breaking up then and maybe it's breaking up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I 
Yeah. But I think that, yeah, obviously the difference is, is that we've, I mean, Simon Bolivar, Simon Bolivar as well, had the same thing with Napoleon, was when he saw his megalomania, he no longer saw him as something that he wanted to aspire to. Although Bolivar was pretty megalomania in his kind of, in his, in his later days. But I think it's interesting that I read, did anyone watch the Frankie Boyle thing, um, the documentary where they had a historian on there that was saying that Britain, never, England never had a revolution in the way that the French have had. So mm. the French Revolution yeah. obviously did something yeah. that set ways. We've never had that here. Yeah. So it's really, I didn't, you know, I'd never really thought of it in that kind of way. It was quite interesting. What about you, Ray? Did you, did, were there things that you identified with as an artist, somebody who's, you know, the struggle to compose, the struggle, of course, you know, it's not only composing, it's also performing. Yeah. Um, turns out that, you know, Beethoven does actually come to terms with his deafness, then that's not really spoken about much in, in an interesting way. Um, I think, yeah, I, I really, you know, actually one of the things I was really, I really enjoyed um, discovering were the conversation pieces. So in the last, when he went completely uh, almost, you know, profoundly deaf. Um, he could only have uh, conversation books. Conversations through, yeah. yeah, conversation books. So, getting to see some of those conversation books is really cool. So, um, with people who uh, he struggles to communicate with, you would write in them. So, basically, it's a whole book of just half a conversation. Um, I found that intriguing, and I, I couldn't do anything, but with them. But it was, it was, it was interesting. Um, one of the things that I think I was looking at as well was. Um, so there's, you know, thinking about deaf, classical, uh, canonized, iconic people. There's Beethoven, but then there's Goya, and they both occupy that same space. So Goya, interestingly, um, he, because he's in Spain, he learned sign language when he went deaf, so he could still connect with people, and people were still mm-hmm. signing. But and that was always the kind of thing with the narrative of Beethoven is that it was so kind of hearing centric. It was doom. It was just there's no there's no way back for me. Um, so yeah, you know, I was I was thinking a lot through that. Um, but yeah, I I came out of that thinking Beethoven's he's all right. <laughs> Actually, no. Can I tell you, I tell you a story? Um, I visited a deaf school in um, in Hertfordshire, and half of this school is named after Be- Beethoven. It's called Beethoven House. And I went there and I gave um, a ceremony, and they asked me about Beethoven, and and you know we, we spoke. And I'm speaking with 50 um, British uh, deaf young people, and after the assembly, um, the teacher says, you know, we need to, uh, we need to kind of modernize. We need to, we need more kind of deaf icons to, to kind of take the, take this place. So they emailed me about two months later and they said, um, we've changed the name of our school, uh, from Beethoven House to Antrobus House. <laughs> and so now I've got this school in Beethoven, like, kind of, and so they sent me this picture of Beethoven's name coming down and Antrobus's name going out, you know. That's, that's one thing I'm going to kind of really... An image that stayed with me with Beethoven. There you go. So, well, if, if you go to the place where he wrote that Heiligenstadt Testament, there's a wonderful oh, yeah. museum. Have you been there? Have I you? have not, no. Well, it's, got, it's a heartbreaking sort of um, picture of the, the ways he tried to hear. And one of them is you get a, a, a stick which you put on your forehead and you attach it to the piano and you can somehow hear through the bone of your... Of, of, I mean, apart from the ear trumpets and all sorts of other things, 
He tried everything. Okay, so shall yeah. I? Yeah, I mean, just to say, there's so many ridiculous myths about, like, the things about how, oh, he had to lie on the floor and compose so he could feel the vibration. It's, it's, uh, it just ties into a lot of kind of misinformation about, about the being of deafness, I thought. Um, but there is a lot of really great discussion about it too. And I, yeah. again, there were, I was I was relieved to find there were things in Beethoven where he claimed it. He, he there were moments in his letters when he says, "No, maybe this has given me this gift. I couldn't be who I am without this." Yeah, I do recommend the Beethoven's letters are extraordinarily interesting. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff there. Um, yeah, but there's also an interesting idea that um, when he was a little boy. Um, sometimes he went into a complete trance of concentration, which his first patron, patron, who was a sort of a, a cultured wo- rich woman in Bonn, called his raptus. And he said once, um, oh, excuse me, I couldn't answer. I was in, I was in such a, a deep thought. I didn't want to be disturbed. And so it has been suggested that that sort of practice of going into that kind of trance from very early, sort of under 10, um, Possibly it, it established some sort of neurosynapses in his brain so that he could actually go into himself in a, and make use of being in himself without relating to the outside world, mm. which was possibly um, of use for him when he mm. did go deaf. It was a sort of preparation in a way. Mm. Anyway, I'll, I'm, I'll finish by reading um, just a couple of poems um, in his later life after... This is after he's lost the immortal beloved, whoever she was, and, and while he feels he's lost the path of how he's writing. He's finished up his heroic phase, and um, he's gone into this barren period from 1812, 1813 on. Um, and I quote from, a, from one of his journals. From a, he, he kept a journal and his fortunes for about sort of six years. This is called Three Days. Oh, God, give me strength to conquer myself. Nothing at all must fetter me to life. Oh, terrible circumstances that do not suppress my feeling for domesticity, but prevent its realisation. Oh, God, God, look down upon this unhappy bee. Do not let it go on much longer in this way. And that was in, that's two entries in his journal, eighteen twelve, eighteen thirteen. And I, I ought to say that you know his friend said he was always in love from a teenager, and usually very much affected by the love he was in at the time. But all the loves always went wrong. And so this is just called three days, and it's really reacting to that. It almost embarrassed me that because of his fame and his eccentricity and his wonderfulness. So much of his what he wrote has been kept. And really, if you, well, you'll hear. We shouldn't be reading this. A self-help diary, the voice of loneliness and struggle. Nothing can stop him tipping into the abyss. Afraid that everything he could create will stay locked in forever. He doesn't know where to go or what to write. He stays with a friend outside the city, a paradise of elm and oak, cool mosses, sun, and at night the blowing net of stars. But he vanishes without a word. They think he's left. Three days go by, and the music master tracks him down to a corner of the grounds, huddling like a wolf crawled off to lick its wounds, trying, he explains, to starve himself 
to death. So that's an extraordinary moment in his life. And now I'll read the last poem, which I call Musica Humana. When he, um, one enormous relationship we've left out is the relationship with really the only person he tried to live with for any length of time, which was his nephew. One of his brothers had this boy and died, and um, there was a huge court case about about him with the mother, but eventually um, Beethoven managed to adopt him <coughs> after five years. The, the, the poor boy was nine when his father died and about 14 when Beethoven finally got him. Um, and he wanted him to call him father, and it just went appallingly wrong. And when he was in his first year at college, he put two bullets into his brain. He didn't manage to kill himself, but he did manage to get himself into hospital. And finally, he got away from Beethoven. And he said um, he was he did it him, to get away from his uncle's harassment. And Beethoven was by by turn appallingly horrible to him and cloyingly possessive about him and saying, my dear son, and everything like that. So you can see this this boy did survive, um, but, um, it, you know, it, was, it wasn't great <laughs> like that. Um, and then finally, um, he took about three months to die. He had dropsy. He had all sorts of other things as well as being deaf. Um, his belly was distended three times. The doctor um, put a hole in it and water or whatever it was gushed out over the floor. And he um, it was he was extraordinarily stoical about that. And, and in the end, very, very gentle and um, musica humana. And he writes to one of his very old childhood friends from his um, bed. I still hope to create a few great works and then, like an old child, finish my earthly course somewhere among kind people. The auditory canal, covered in glutinous scales, shining throughout the autopsy. The auditory arteries, thick and cartilaginous, as if stretched over a raven's quill, and the auditory nerve withered to a pure white strand. But reading the last page in the book of his life on earth, how he joked to the doctor who lanced his belly, gallons of fluid gushing across the floor. You remind me of Moses striking the rock with his staff. How he laughed when he could. How he read and reread with great joy, he said, a final gift, a 40 volume set of all the works of Handel. And how he died lifting his fist as if it held a bird he would release into the storm pelting Vienna with snow, like the reckless feathers driving all our lives to seek the fullest experience of the air. I listen to Cello Sonata Opus 69 and hear the unquenchable spirit that powers every note he writes and lives on dancing, dancing in you, me, everyone.
now I think we can have questions. There is a roving night mic, so um, just put your everybody put up your hands and any any questions. <sighs> oh, yeah, just... yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Just to see what, what we've got. Okay, yeah. Okay. What I wanted to say, Beethoven's text for the Ode to Joy was similar but not identical to um, Schiller's original text in that certain words had to be changed. Yeah. And, okay. and I think that... That's that, true. I think that should be um, also explained... Um, and, and, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Yes, yes you I, found that. Didn't yeah, you? I found that out to be true. There were uh, several different um, renditions and translations of the original, but obviously because it was being set to music, he did have to adopt some of the language and change some of the words around in order to to fit it. In fact, Tracy K. Smith. Um, the American Poet Laureate has got an amazing version of Ode to Joy. If anyone's interested in reading it, it's up online. Um, and you can oh, kind that's of see. Yeah. Uh, actually, what I, one of the things I discovered was that um, he was, we haven't mentioned the early, his early childhood and everything, but he, he, was, he was taught by a wonderful organist who was a member of the Illuminati. I'm sure there are people here who know this much better than me, actually. But a member of the Illuminati, which was a kind of slightly Mason-like group. Um, um, and um, the Ode to Joy was... Is that, is yeah, that, is it, you, we're, we're Illuminati. You're Illuminati. Don't tell are. them that. <laughs> Great. Well, but apparently the Ode to Joy was, was often, often set to music for different people yeah. then. Anyway, another, another question. Hi. Um, firstly, thank you for the readings, and um, I've really enjoyed enjoyed them and, and talking about your your works that you can't read yet. Um, you've all come to know Beethoven very well through your research and, and just just being uh, sort of studying him. What do you think, uh, and in particular his character? What do you think he would say if somebody told him, 250 years from his birthday, we'd all be enjoying poetry with a glass of wine?" Uh, in London, listening to 
poetry about about him? I think he'd say, "Why aren't you listening to the damn music?" <laughs> what do you think? What was the question? What What do you think he'd say when he's when when he was when he was told that 250 years after his birth, we'd all be listening and writing poetry about him with a glass of wine in London? He'd go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, just gone. So I don't know. Um, it's, uh, you could ask anything. What wine is it? Um, <laughs> is it good? I don't know. It's just because you, I think you've got the narcissistic answer, and then you've got the other answer. So I kind of feel it depends what mood someone's in. I mean, if any of us lot in 250 years' time, anyone's thinking or reading or writing what we're doing, then who knows what the answer would be? I don't know. It just depends on the mood, I guess. He did love wine, and yeah. um, <laughs> and he was very. And one of the very touching things of these three months. But from January to March, um, 1827, um, he, he asked for a crate of Rhine wine because he left the Rhineland, which is where he was born. He always kept his Rhineland accent. And, um, they sent it, they sent it, but too late. And he said, pity, pity, too late. And they gave him a little spoonful. Yeah. But he did like red wine. He did like a little, yeah, question. Um, yeah. I, w- I wanted to, um, I want to ask two aspects of this question. Were you all listening to his music as you write? I mean, that's hard to do anyway, because it's distracting. <laughs> but do you see the, the writing and the work you're doing as parallel to the music or somehow interacting with it in, in some way? What, what is it doing for you? Could you write your wonderful works, and thank you very much for that, um, without hearing the music. Well, it's very different for, for Ray and me. For Anthony, had to write words to the music. So, right, yeah, yeah, words that already existed. And that's what was difficult, because it was such a constraint. One, taking words that already existed, and then trying to add a kind of contemporary flavour to those words, but also working within the, the musical notations as well. So there were so many barriers that I felt that I was going up against. I had a word, and the director was like, no, nah, it needs to be ba 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 bum And I was like, oh. So I had to try and find a word <laughs> that went ba 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 bum you know? And so you're kind of working. Yeah, different, it's completely different from just whacking out a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Uwe? I mean, because I just focus on the man rather than the music, if I'm honest. I was just interested in, you know, the kind of things, what he was like, you know, because we know about his famous temperament. But actually, one of the things I forgot to mention was what a tender teacher he was. Mm. And there were so many testimonies of people just saying, you know, I I have this memory of being this child and Beethoven um, had requested to see, you know, who were the best musicians of the day. You know, being shown these young... Uh, kind of prodigies of, of, of their instruments and and almost so many of the testimonies were like, you know, I sat there, Beethoven didn't even look at me, stared out the window and I was so nervous I thought he was either going to hit me or or kiss me, I couldn't tell which one was going to come but all the time it was like you, you are fantastic, you're genius you, want, you know, every, that was a real um, something, I don't know, there was, there, was a, there was an energy in that, that kind of helped brought me to him as a person i know your questions about the music though my relationship with the music isn't uh isn't isn't what's come out of the work 
with no. me, I, I, I was brought up as a viola player, which Beethoven also was. So I, I played Beethoven chamber music when I was a child and um, also sang in some things. So, so um, I knew a lot of the music very intimately and I had to slightly keep it out but, but, mm. but um, because music gets in your way yeah. when you're writing. Yeah. Um, the, one, the one bits of music that I didn't know and um, were, for, were three trombone quartets that he wrote um, just after he left or, had, or whatever happened with The Immortal Beloved. And I, and I listened to them over and over again. They haven't got an opus number. They are words. That, there's, there's a, there are pieces called W-O-O, um, works una opera uh, without an opus number and um, then they have a number I mean I don't know <laughs> um, so they're one of those but these, these extraordinary quartets and they are amazing and he wrote them in 1812 in November for All Souls Night and they were I think they're a kind of funeral of love he didn't love anybody else afterwards and so I did keep writing when I was listening to those, just those little three little pieces. But that's, that was, was for one poem. Hmm. Yeah. One more question, and I think otherwise, uh, yeah, well, I, maybe two. Yeah. Um, we know why you guys have written about Beethoven, but Ruth, why did you um, want to write a whole collection about Beethoven's life? Okay, so this, this book actually started five years ago when I was um, commissioned to write poems for the interval of a quartet concert. Um, between um, one of the early quartets, which he wrote when he was going deaf and not telling anybody, and one of the wonderful late quartets. And I loved working with that quartet. I'd already worked with them. And then I was setting myself the task of, of, of discovering how somebody who was a young man, not yet 30, um, and who was writing in the classical style and had not written quartets before, how... What was the journey from that young man to the tormented but fulfilled uh, extraordinary artist who wrote the late quartets? And so I didn't really know. I wrote those. I, I didn't think they were perfect poems, but it, it worked as a concert with the, with the quartet. And then I went on working with that quartet, and I did some with Schubert. And then I suggested to my editor, maybe I could do Beethoven and Schubert together. And um, we'd call it the divine spark because um, Schubert um, was was much younger than Beethoven. Um, and the, there is a story that some of his music was given to Beethoven on his deathbed practically. And Beethoven said, this young man has a divine spark. But uh, tragically, Schubert died the next year, so himself. So I thought, and then I went to Bonn, and this is now 18 months ago. And then I realized that a, there was much too much stuff on Beethoven to add Schubert to it, and Schubert ought to have something of his own anyway. And B, that there was this 250th anniversary coming up, so I'd better get a move on. <laughs> um, and then I thought, well, I do, I'll, I'll do Beethoven's life in that sort of curve. And then Beethoven just completely took me over. But also, I put some of myself in it because I'm the viola player. And from the age of 10, his father took him out of school and um, put him into the court orchestra, playing viola. So I realized I'd grown up playing a lot of orchestral parts, which Beethoven had grown up playing too. And that was sort of exciting. Yeah. I think one more question. Yes, Nicola. Oh, yes. 
Um, I was really interested in what you were saying about overcoming narrative, the narrative of overcoming deafness. And, and that's often used, it's often used with Van Gogh as well, overcoming mental illness. The overcoming word is one that's very problematic. And it's interesting to think about not so much that the deafness or any other of these things that are supposedly meant to be overcome, but they are simply part of a very rich human neurodiversity. And, and that is, that is part of creativity. Um, Van Gogh is also supposed to, you know, he created all his great works in a very short period of time when he was suffering from quite extreme mental health issues. But you can also look at it in another way. So maybe also we can look at Beethoven in another way that he, he didn't, as you were saying, he didn't overcome his deafness. It was an essential element of his creativity in the long term. This, that's, shall, shall we, that's a very interesting thing. I mean, what I, what I could do is, is, is read what happened when I went to see the manuscript of one of the late quartets, because I, in a way, I had that thought that my, maybe he couldn't have written this if he hadn't gone deaf. But in, I, I don't know if that's, you might have something to say to this, but I, I mean, I could just, shall I try reading it? I mean, mm. yes, please. yes, yeah, cool. <laughs> okay. Okay, so this is the the manuscripts of some of the late quartets are in Krakow, um, and we could explore why over a glass of wine. But anyway, they're in Krakow, and um, uh, this is the this is his manuscript one three one, which is the C sharp minor. For those who know it, it's an extraordinary and revolutionary piece. Um, and as a violinist, wrote his memoirs about. Um, but being with Beethoven at that time, he was called Karl Holst, and he, he was part of the quartet that played the first performance of some of these things. While composing the three quartets, he was commissioned to write three quartets um, by Prince Galitzin. Um, such a wealth of new ideas flowed from his imagination that he had to write the quartets in C-sharp minor and F major too. My dear fellow, I've just had another idea, he would say jocularly, with glistening eyes, out walking, and write a few notes in his sketchbook. So I went, to, I was in Krakow, and I um, went to this archive, and I'd asked to see it. One, on opening the manuscript of Opus 131 in the music archive, Krakow. Blue placard and a leafy street. The ordinary trance of morning light on flickering poplars, wind-blown jade, bentwood chairs with metal legs, bound manuscripts with marble covers. I never believed I'd meet him here, still less that my fingers could touch his touch on the page. Two, another chance to be new again. Does being deaf break the chains. Could he have written this otherwise? Fugue and variation lead to rebirth, regeneration. The initial theme transformed into a thousand petioles and branches, all carrying the DNA of the first seed. Three. Black cobwebs crossings out. Five sharps like wriggling insects. I can't imagine how any player could read this. 
but I recognize the voices, first solo, then together, now angry and loud, now gentle. I remember my father saying, you could tell from this everything of the human, yearning, loving, in despair, then calm, amused and jokey, sotto voce, beyond loss. Three bars slashed out. The way he wrote, espressivo. Here, over pale lines of the stave, the famous tortured entries, one by one. When the librarian is not looking, I kiss the corner of the page. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.